very good to, uh, to be with you all. Nothing better than gathering to celebrate the name of Jesus. He is so good and uh, so loving and so powerful. So we've got a special privilege. We've got a guest. Oh, not a guest. Uh, we've got uh, a part of our church family that is back uh, visiting with us today, Drew and Jen Soderstrom. Absolutely. Give it up for them. And their, their kids, Braden and Kay, uh, Carson and Peyton, I saw them somewhere. They're around here. There they are. Hey, sweetheart, nice to see you, Peyton. Nice to have you guys here. So uh, Drew and Jen joined our, our church family back in 2006. And uh, Drew came on staff at that time as our pastor of students. At that time, it was just he and Jen. Braden was born just a, a few months after that, and he was our student ministries pastor, became our adult ministries pastor. And then in 2013, hard to believe, we sent them off to Sacramento, to El Dorado Hills, to uh, plant a church. I still remember sitting with Drew in my office, and for some time we'd been talking about what's the next step for him. He had always desired to be a lead guy. Our vision is to send folks off. And so what's that next step look like, going to an existing church or planting a church? I remember him saying, you know, I think I want to plant a church. And I said, well, where would you like to plant it? And I hadn't thought about it before, but he said, I think Sacramento, but of course we couldn't do that. And it suddenly occurred to me, why couldn't we? So Julie and I were up there just a few weeks ago, and uh, there's a thriving, vibrant church now up in El Dorado Hills where they're promoting the name of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things I could tell you about Drew, but I'm going to just give you three of the things that uh, I, I appreciate the most. The first is his boundless energy. I don't know if you've ever been around him, but the man, people call me a type A in lots of energy, and I still miss on Sunday mornings, I would be sitting in my office, I still do it to prepare for the sermon a little bit, and he, he doesn't just enter the room, he kind of crashes into the room. So every Sunday morning, I still, uh, I, I still think about him. The second all, uh, thing is for all this energy, his passion to know and promote Jesus, both he and Jen. He's just excited about Jesus. Sometimes we pastors can get excited about a lot of things and being excited about Jesus, but what this has always been true with this guy is his passion uh, to share Jesus. And, and the third is his faith, and I'm including Jen in this. She's actually a part of the church pastoral team up in El Dorado Hills. Is, is just, and I'm going to talk about their faith. Uh, I can't ever forget April Fool's Day, 2009. And I got a text from Drew, and uh, I never considered that it was April Fool's joke. And I met them over at Placentia Linda Hospital here over in the ER with Braden. And he was two years old. So most of you know he battled leukemia in treatments for a year. And then when he was three, there was a relapse. Now, Braden's here today, 13 years old, just began ninth grade and doing well. Where are you, Braden? Hey, I see you again, big boy. Watching this young couple, we all face challenges. Watching this young couple walk through this challenge. 
in faith and trusting God. It's the best way to assess where we are is when life gets tough and watching this young couple. So he and I still talk regularly. We text weekly. And uh, uh, Drew, it is a privilege to have you uh, here, brother. Thanks for being with us. And mostly, Braden and Carson and Peyton. Thank you for being here. Thank you, man. Love you. It is uh, really fun to be here today. Just thanks for having us, and it's funny to come as a guest, but then also to not feel like I'm a guest at all. Um, just to see you, I feel like it was just yesterday. I don't think we age. Our kids age, and they age us, but I'm still convinced we all look the same. And then I see some of the students that were like in elementary, and now they're in high school or high school that are now married and having kids, and uh, some of those early classes that we had. Just thank you. This past summer, I got to walk us through the book of Philippians we called it the joy course. Um, Paul's writing to a church that he planted, and he says, I thank my God for you. Feels like regularly. Um, and so it's kind of a privilege for me to come back, almost like Philippi, going back to Paul. I look at all of you like Paul. I thank my God for you. We talk about RCC a bunch at Vintage Grace. Uh, we talk about your Belinda. We feel like we've moved from North Orange County to Orange County North. Um, we think we're smarter than you because it's half the cost of living. Um, <laughs> Because there's seasons, we have a lake in our backyard instead of an ocean, but I guess we have fires now too. So maybe you're smarter than us because we could not be outside today. But there's really no way for me to appropriately communicate my gratitude and my love and my thankfulness for you. It's just everywhere. And everything we say, everything we do, like the joke early at Vintage was that if you look at RCC's website and Vintage Grace's website, the only difference is a younger, less obese, bald man on the front page. <laughs> now I'm not bald, so I'm just younger and a little less obese still. But who we are as a church, who I am as a man, as a husband, as a dad, is a direct result of God's grace, of Todd Chapman, of RCC as I'm looking around at elders and leaders that I've spent time with for years. And there's just no real way for me to say thank you, but I'll just keep saying it because hopefully you'll get it. I know that doesn't work as a preacher, that the more you say it, the more they get it. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Corporately, you guys don't just have a church plant in El Dorado Hills. We've planted two churches since you sent us, partnered with planters, coaching planters, one in Oakland and one in Oak Park, which is in Sacramento. You guys literally have grandchildren that you didn't know about, and in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> so it's corporate fruit that hangs on RCC trees. Like you guys could have, you had an orange grove at one point, right? You could have built a gym at the orange grove. I think that's what Todd wanted to do, a basketball gym. But instead, you built a joyful community of faith that we now call Vintage Grace. Some of you have been to that church and by God's grace, through you and your generosity, your time, your talent, your treasure, we've been able to plant more too. But it's even not the corporate fruit that I'm so grateful for. It's really the personal fruit. See, just yesterday, I got a text from a vintage family. In fact, he was the first guy to come to faith at Vintage Grace. Uh, and his house burned down Saturday at 3 a.m. So that's what we woke up to yesterday. And yet I have no doubt in my mind that he is prepared for this next step in his faith. That's what God's inviting him into, that God is doing all things for his glory and for your good and for that family's good. 
And because of your grace and your faith and your investment, that man and his family, not only do they trust and treasure Jesus, but they're ready to be homeless. Because in the kingdom of God, is that not what we all are? I'm also grateful because earlier this past week, we got bad news. We say at Vintage Grace, there's no bad news in the kingdom of God, just news that God's using for his glory and for your good. And yet one of my dear friends, 48 years old, diagnosed with cancer, and the news came back bad, real bad. In fact, we'll leave tomorrow morning early to go spend time with them as a family. And yet he's very direct. Drew, this was a youth pastor for 20 years who left the ministry and has been at Vintage Grace. We tend to collect former pastors at our church right now. And as he's grown in his faith these last three years, he just flat out said, Drew, we as a family would not be ready for this diagnosis and this potential imminent death if it wasn't for God's grace through Vintage Grace. Which just please hear me say that that grace is actually not something that we ever cornered the market on or got. We only received it through you. So, Todd, I just can't say thank you enough. Dan, you were an elder at the time. Where's Ed Schuler? I mean, he played a big role in that. I, you're way back there. I don't spit that far. <laughs> and there's a, so many others. Those are just the ones I see right now. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Corporately, thank you. Personally, thank you. And the lives that have been changed because of you, thank you. And now I'm like, well, shoot, I haven't started my sermon yet, so I probably should get to that. If you have your Bibles, pull out to the book of Colossians. Today, we're going to look at kind of a former period of life. We've been driving around as a family the last couple of days and reminding the kids, this is where we used to live, and this is what dad used to do, what mom used to do. And one of the things I used to do back in the good old days in a previous life in Orange County, California, is I used to teach at a little school called Biola University. Ever heard of Biola? When I pull out a red pen, does anyone get PTSD from a professor holding a red pen or just me? Like there's something about a red pen that just gives us the twitch. And I remember being a professor, and, and I love teaching. I love the Word of God, like Todd said. I love that that love was increased in my time here as a pastor through Todd's guidance and mentorship and discipleship. But I love teaching. I, I taught hermeneutics, so how to read the Bible, and I would regularly get guys that wanted to go into ministry. And one student in particular, he's kind of my favorite student. Now, if you're here and you're a former student, you also were my favorite student, I promise. <laughs> But this guy was English as a second language. He just moved to the States to go to school. I love spending time with this guy. This was one of those students. He wanted to be a pastor. He felt the call in his life. He is now in Texas. So fun years later to see these former students now give away their faith for the glory of God. And again, he was one of those guys that would stay after class. Drew, what about this? How do I do this? And so in hermeneutics, we talk a lot about their town versus our town, how to read the Bible in the original intent, the author's intent, the logic and flow. What happens there matters more important than what happens even here. Then we apply it through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so we would write these big essays. They were these author's intent kind of papers. What's God doing in their town? Cross the exponential bridge to what's God doing in our town and then apply it to our lives. Logic and flow, author's intent, and it was so fun to watch this student. Some students, you can tell, they're just trying to get by. Other students are like, this is everything. And so I couldn't wait to get his paper back. Historical context, what's happening? Where do we go? And I remember they all got the assignment. We met together as a team. We prepared for this moment, really the first half of the semester, just getting ready to now writing these big papers and so the, the students were tasked, they had the mission, they knew what they were supposed to do, and they went home to do it, and they came back and they turned it in. And I was so excited to grab my red pen and to start figuring out what went on. And I got this man's paper, and I remember writing over and over again, great job, 
Way to get into their town. Way to understand what the author was talking about. This is beautiful. This is incredible. Great application. Way to not leave it 2,000 years ago, but apply it today. Good, great, awesome, excellent. And then I got to the end of the paper. And again, I was so excited to read his paper. It was such a good paper. And I got to the end, and I said, brother, you know I love you. We've spent time together in class. Here's the problem. You wrote your paper on the wrong assignment. And it was a good paper. But as a professor with integrity, everyone had the same assignment. Everyone had the text that they were supposed to write on. And he decided to write on a different text than what I actually assigned him. See, the question for us today is what is the assignment? What is the thing that God has given not just you and me, but every one of us to do And God's made that very clear. Now, before you think I'm a complete jerk, I'm a partial jerk, but not a complete jerk, I let him rewrite the paper. And by God's grace, is he not patient with his red pen with us? Amen? But God gave us an assignment. In fact, he made it very simple, right? He told us to go make disciples. Our definition of a disciple at Vintage Grace, maybe you've heard it, but it's living our cubed. It's not R1 or R2 or R3, but a disciple is that intersection of where those three circles meet. That's the target. That's the goal. That's what we're after. And can I just be really, really honest? I have a great fear and concern for the Church of America. I say it regularly from our pulpit, and I'll say it from yours because it's not my pulpit, so what do I care? (laughs) The greatest stumbling block to the mission of God today in the Church of America is two things in my opinion. One is senior pastors, and two are Sunday morning gatherings. Now, that's weird because I am one with one. I'm not against those things. But I think that we've missed the assignment when we start to think that church is about a gathering during the week and not about the scattering of the saints Monday through Friday. Amen? Now, again, I know I've been gone a long time, but amen just means I agree and I'm not asleep. Okay? So I just want to make sure that you're with me. Amen? And so this is the assignment It's not an assignment that RCC created. It's not an assignment that Vintage Grace created. Who gave us the assignment? Well, his name was Jesus. And before he left, he gathered his disciples and he said something to them. You remember, it's called the Great Commission. He tells them very directly. He comes and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and plant churches, have large worship gatherings, have rock star concerts, get everyone to come here. No, what did he tell us to do? Go what? Dear. This is the audience participation point of the morning. When there's that long, awkward pause, that's you. One assignment, go make disciples. And so we've got to know what's the target, what's a disciple. And if I can be really honest, it breaks my heart. By God's grace, I get the privilege of partnering with all sorts of churches all across the country. And the reality is I hear way too many senior pastors say, yeah, our church doesn't know what a disciple is. Well, senior pastor, that's your job. That's actually what you've been called to do to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is simple. Go make what? Disciples. These aren't my words. This is from Jesus himself. Go make disciples. And it breaks my heart that so many people don't know what a disciple is. RCC, that should not be your problem because I've ripped off the definition from you. A disciple is one who's living R cubed. That's what a disciple is. Deepening with God, life changing with other believers, engaging with the yet to believe. That's what it means to be a disciple. It comes straight from Matthew 28. 
And it breaks my heart that on some level, we're not doing a very good job in the church of America, and we can complain about it, or we can actually do what Jesus told us to do, which is go make disciples. And how good is our God that he's patient with his red pen? He doesn't cast us away. He doesn't beat us up. He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. You're knuckleheads. Todd might say that. I might say that. But Jesus is patient. He says, I have a plan for you, and it's to send you to be the living proof of a loving God. And notice the text. He doesn't say you're going to go do it on your own. Because how many of you guys are crushing this whole making disciples thing? Anybody just, you're the best? No. No, what does Jesus tell us? He says, now go, you're going to do this through teaching, observing them all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm going to leave my spirit in you, and he's going to work through you, that greater things will be done in the completed work of the atonement of Christ than even that I've yet done so far, Jesus says. That's not a lie. He's saying you're going to be released to make disciples in the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to look at today. My summary stand for today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. It's going to be a little different than we would normally do at RCC, normally at Vintage Grace. We're doing this exact same thing at our church right now that we're doing here today. It's kind of like a fall launch Sunday for us. It's a vision Sunday. It's a launching pad into the fall to be focused this fall on the assignment, on what God has given us to do, to be, and to say. And so the summary statement, we're not going to, we're going to look at a text, but you're going to get back into Corinthians next week. We're going to get back into John next week. But instead, the summary statement for today is actually our vision statement at Vintage Grace. This is our vision statement. Do you see it? Does it look familiar? Our vision as a church is to build joy-filled communities of faith whose very existence inspires individuals to live the abundant Christian life, made up of three key relationships, deepening with God, life-changing with other believers, and engaging with the yet-to-believe. It's what we call our cubed. Now, this vision statement doesn't come from Todd's brain. It doesn't come from my brain. It comes from the heart of Jesus, given through the heart of the Father that woos us back into relationship with him. And so we're going to read Colossians 3. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a lot of verses. We're going to zoom in on just the last three verses, 15 through 17, and then we're going to talk about what does it look like for us to actually live this way. Let's start in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you then also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming In these two you once walked, all of you, when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, no giant fan, no Dodger fan, no NorCal, no SoCal, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against you, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. These are the verses we'll zoom in on. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you 
And we ask, Spirit, that you would speak. We can't even begin to actually tackle the target or fulfill the assignment apart from your grace. And so, Spirit of God, this is a you thing. We can't, but you, God, are doing it right now. Would you do it to us? Would you renew us by your word, by your present spirit? Would we see you? Would we get off the throne of our heart? Instead, would we worship you? Would you do a great work for your glory through us, we pray. And everybody said, amen. I want to zoom in now. Verse 15 starts this way. And let the peace of Christ, what in your hearts? Rule. I want to start there. Vintage Grace, we regularly use a stool up on stage, and it's a metaphor for me of the throne of our heart. In the beginning, in the garden, God designed you and me primarily for relationship. He designed us for his glory, but in the garden, I believe that every one of us has a throne of our heart. Adam and Eve had one, you and me have one, and everyone in between has had a throne in our heart. It's not literal, it's metaphorical. And yet in that throne of your heart, there's vacancy for one, for one person. In the garden, God sat on the throne of Adam's heart, of Eve's heart. It was his relationship. There was no anxiety, no stress. Does anyone here want more peace in the fall? Anyone want peace? Pay attention to what Paul says here. And let the what rule in your heart? Peace. Who's the person of peace? You look all throughout the New Testament, it's the Spirit of God. It's it's God himself. It's the Godhead. Let peace rule in your heart. There was perfect peace in the garden. There was no worry about the Giants-Dodgers series. There was no worry about famine. There was no worry about food or job. There was no worry about COVID. There was no worry about unemployment. There was no worry about mandated vaccines. There was just peace. The problem that happened in the garden, if you read in the beginning of Genesis, that Adam and Eve and you and me and everyone in between, we've not got off the throne of our hearts. We've literally gone, that's what sin is. Sin is knocking God off the throne of your heart. It's not trusting that his better is better. It's not believing and trusting and treasuring Jesus. And so in the beginning, that's what we saw in the garden. And what we see today is a lack of people, I believe, trusting and treasuring Jesus. A lack of people surrendering their heart to him. And so as Paul's writing to this church in chaos, he's writing to this church that he loves. He says, guys, I want to woo you back to the garden. That's what he wants to take us back to. Back in the garden when peace ruled. And how did peace rule in our hearts? Because Jesus ruled in our hearts. Because he was king and he was king alone. In fact, if you go early on, even to not just the great commission, but go to the great commandment. When people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, they say, Jesus, what is the the most important thing? And what does he say in the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart. Like, again, for the Jew, that was all-encompassing. That was everything. It wasn't just your hands, your head, and your heart. It was everything. It was let God rule in your hearts. Let him have peace and control. I don't know about you, but often I put things on the throne of my heart like cell phones or like my job or like something that I can control, and I put things on the throne of my heart, and R1 starts with the most important relationship that you can have. It's R1 for a reason. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Get the stuff off of the throne of your heart. Not about you, but I don't regularly put evil things on the throne of my heart. They're evil for a reason. I resist those. What goes on the throne of my heart often is good things, not God things. It's like the health of my kids, the wealth of my family, The freedoms that I want to protect, I let these things creep onto the throne of my heart. How much vacancy is in the throne of your heart? One. And so what starts to happen, I'm afraid, in the Church of America, and for you and me as well, is we have what I would call one-cheek faith. Like, Like, we're ready to give God some of our heart, but not all of it. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the peace of what? Jesus rule in your 
That was better, but we got some work to do, church. Let, let it rule in your heart. The word rule means take dominion. Let it have all the space that it requires, that it needs. And church, just please hear me. I don't like using the pulpit as like public professional, but I think all of us need to recognize that we let things creep onto the throne of our heart all the time. Amen? So we've got to be aware of what the assignment is. The assignment was R1, a deepening relationship with God. As if you're wrestling this morning, well, what is on the throne of my heart? I'd encourage you, this is like back to school season. This is like back to school shopping for your soul right now. What are you putting in? What are you putting on? What are you letting in? What's taking up space? Let's keep reading in verse 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What are you putting in your dwelling place? What are the things that are there? Is it the word of God? My passion for the word of God comes from the fact that this is the way he told us his mind, his heart for the nations, and he gave it to us. Is that what sits on the throne of our heart where we can actually know him as father, know him as brother and son, know him as the high priest, the great atonement? What are the things that we put there? And so again, earlier in this text, Paul's saying, take these things off, get these things out, and put these things on, specifically Jesus. Now again, how many of you have been stressed in the last year and a half? Anybody? Anybody been anxious? What, what are some of the things you've been anxious about? This is, again, audience participation point of the message. Just shout them out. What have you been anxious about? COVID. What else? Lack of freedom. Lack of freedom. What else? Family. Health. Future. Future. I, I once went to a church with this great series in Luke, and it was all about certainty. That was your church. Church, I'm not setting you up for failure. I'm just saying anxiety actually doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. Not when he rules, not when the, the prince of peace rules in our heart. And, and where does this anxiety come from? Well, it comes from our flesh because we're all broken. It comes from the world that's around it. It comes from the enemy himself that's whispering lies of deceit, typically half-truths. It comes from all these different spaces I love what J.R. Tolkien once said. He said, be careful what you put in your head and in your heart. The news media has a strong negativity bias. It's mostly all about murderers and football scores. I love that. But you know what we're not putting in our head and our heart? And I'm not, I'm not apart from, I'm, I'm with you in this. All these things that cause us anxiety, these sleepless nights, what happens is we haven't put this in the throne of our heart and let Jesus take residence. Instead, we've got all these other noises speaking to us. Maybe we're not actually listening to the Holy Spirit because there's too many other noises that are fighting for our attention and for our ears. Michael Grothaus, a journalist, this is a journalist that wrote this. Studies have shown that there's an overabundance of news and when that happens, it can make you depressed, anxious, and for the most part, it usually provides you never with the ability to actually change or influence anything they're talking about. That's funny. And I'm not anti the news. I'm just wondering when you wake up in the morning, are you going to the spirit or are you going to the news? Are you grabbing your phone to saying, what, what happened next? Because I don't know about you, but whenever I look out at the world, I get depressed. Anybody else? And so when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he says, our Father who art in what? Heaven. I think on some level he's calling us to not look out, but to look up. That changes things. That's when the peace of Christ can start to rule and take residence and dwell in you richly. That should pay attention for those of us who are following him. I think Corona taught us a lot in the last year and a half. 
don't know about you, but for me, it continued to teach me that my faith is too small. So Vintage Grace, I, I say this pretty regularly, but do we trust Jesus? Yes, but not enough. Does that relate to anybody else? Lord, help us with our lack of faith. Help us with our tendency to put our one-cheek faith on the throne and instead to get off because there really is more joy in Jesus if we give him our heart and give him the dwelling place that he alone deserves to have. Now, what I love about R1 is that this really is the first key relationship, this deepening with God. It's, it's my encouragement to you. If I only get one sermon every seven years, this is where I go. This will make you happy. As one of your former pastors, I want you happier tomorrow than you are today. That only happens when the peace of Christ rules in your heart. When you actually fight for your joy in Jesus. And here's the good news. You actually can't fight alone. You're just not that good. God in his grace, he said in the garden, right? It is not good for man to live alone. And every man said, amen. Guys, it's not good for Christians to live alone. And that's part of what's happened, I think, in the last year and a half, is we've been kind of pushed off into isolation. And instead, we have to fight not with others, but for our joy together. We have to fight to go vertically, whatever that looks like. Build a tent. I don't care. But don't be on an island. Don't be living your life in Jesus apart from the people that he left you to live it with. So he puts his spirit in you, but he also says, did you guys see in the text all the one another's just in Colossians? Like, it's all over the Bible, it's everywhere, but did you see the beginning of Colossians 3? And then it's even here, right in the middle of Colossians 3. He says this, as we let the rule of Christ rule in our hearts, he says, you don't do this on your own. You were called to this in one what? Body. We're family. We fight for our joy together, not in isolation, but together. It's football season, which means it's Niners season. So if the Dodgers do take the Giants, no big deal. The Niners are coming, right? <laughs> we just pivot to the next thing that brings us joy. And yet I love this. I'm a wannabe athlete, former athlete, and I used to love to put my jersey on. But there's one name on the jersey that means the most. And I think sometimes when we're young, we get confused. We think the name on the back means the most. But the most important name on a jersey is what? It's on the front. One body. I've seen way too many Christians fight about things that are not of the Lord. They're not fighting for his glory, for his kingdom. They're really fighting for theirs. So church, pay attention we're not called to live on an island. We're called to be a church, one church. And this R2, this key relationship, this is kind of the how behind the what. And I'm still convinced that Satan, again, he gives these half-truths. Like, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. On some level, that's not true. Like, it is. It's about you and Jesus. Your parents' faith doesn't save you. It's you and Jesus. And yet also, he saves us corporately. He saves us together to live in this joy-filled community of faith together. And so don't miss all the one another's within the text that you were called in one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Make sure that we're talking about the things that matter most. And yet I also believe that this last year, more than any year, I've never tipped my hat to Satan more. Now, church, don't be afraid of Satan. We actually know the final score. <laughs> we have nothing to fear. I don't know about you, but when I yell at the TV during sports games, if I knew what the final score was, I wouldn't yell in the second quarter very often, would I? It'd be silly. And yet, church... Are we paying attention to what we're writing on Facebook? As we're yelling at the TV at times, and we're forgetting that the peace of Christ rules in our heart, that he's Lord, that he's king, and that he's called us to be a people set apart for his glory and for the good of this world. And so R2 is about this life-changing relationship with each other. My buddy said it this way in light of politics and mass and racial division and everything from the last year and a half. He says, it's not that you disagree. Church, it's important that we have people in our life that we can disagree with. That's an important thing. It'll either affirm that the holes in your argument are actually okay 
or it'll help you believe something different that's actually better. We can't be afraid of robust dialogue and conversations. That's not what I'm promoting. But what I'm promoting is not that you disagree, but it's how you disagree. I mean, with each other, like Satan's just sitting back laughing, going, man, what a great couple of years it's been for the kingdom of darkness. They're divided. They're fighting amongst each other, and they're not caring about the lost at all. Think about this. It's not that you disagree. It's how you disagree. My buddy said, reasonableness, winsomeness, graciousness, kindness, these are the qualities that we as Christians should never despise. This should define us. So even in our disagreements, this should define us. Pay attention to what Paul says here. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your, rule in your heart let, do it at one body. Don't drool in your heart. <laughs> Be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and what? Admonishing. It's not that there aren't going to be moments where we're called as Christians to say, hey, I think you're settling for less. That's what I define sin as, settling for lesser joy. Letting other things creep onto your heart. As brothers, out of love, we can go. But when we go and we try to point a finger, can we just be quick to recognize there's three pointing right back at us? And so we go with humility. We go with, hey, I could be wrong you Laker fans down here, like, I could be wrong, but I love you enough to say, the Warriors have won three in the last 10 years, and you've only won one. So I just want more for you. And if that's the heart as brothers, personally, I receive that well. I've received it from guys like Todd. Say, I think you might be missing something here. It's not that we don't admonish. We do teach. We give sermons. Our lives are sermons. But it's the context of a relationship that's key that we trust and that we're fighting for our joy together. Really, as I read this verse in 16, it says, The word of Christ only richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We do four things every Sunday when we gather at Vintage. We sing songs. We tell stories. We have a sermon. And then we send our people. Four S's. It's cute, right? We do four S's. I think Colossians is talking about this on some level. We sing songs. You know when you sing songs, you're not just singing songs to God. You are, but we're singing songs to each other. We're reminding each other because every day I'm tempted to get back up on the throne of my heart and I'm, being, I'm hearing the word of God. I'm hearing the word of God proclaimed, Drew, that's not going to make you happy. That's going to lead you to settle for less. And so you see some of these S's here. You sing songs. When it says sing spiritual songs, I think those are actually stories. So often we sing songs. We're telling stories. It's why the theology of our singing actually matters. It's why we're not singing for a performance but for a glory of God. Is it not good news that we don't sing for a performance? Mark Buers and I think that's good news. But we sing loud. Why? Because there's a theology that grounds us in the word of God so that as the world is tossing us to and fro, James says you're anchored in Christ. Amen? So we're telling stories to each other. Why do we tell stories? Because we tend to forget. We tend to forget that God is good all the time and what? Okay, this isn't an RCC thing. Clearly, it's a vintage thing. When I say God is good all the time, you get to say all the time God is good. So God is good all the time and? See, I preach so long, I have to make sure there's points in the sermon, people are awake. But it's important, why? Because how many of you guys forget during the week that God is good all the time? Anyone ever forget that? Like when your son gets cancer, when you lose your job, when COVID feels like it's overtaking you, and when the Dodgers might go into first place. All of these are moments that cause us to go, wait a second, what do I believe? Is God's better, better? And the answer is, yes, Lord, help me with my lack of faith because I don't believe it enough. Lord, help me to believe more completely and fully because R1 drives our R2. And so we teach, we sing songs, we share directly. 
We've seen these things because we forget. We tell stories. You know what I love at Vintage Grace? We tell stories every Sunday on a, some level. Part of Todd's and my story it might be your story today. But on some level, the best part of the story of Drew and Todd and of RCC and Vintage Grace is that God gets all the glory. So we tell our stories about the man that was tempted to leave his wife. He actually did leave his wife, but, but then he realized that he was a knucklehead and he was breaking a covenant and it wasn't going to make him happier to try this other woman on for size. He's like, I got to repent of that and come back to the covenant that I made. Guys, who gets the glory in that story? God. No pastor saved that person. The grace of God, the goodness of the Holy Spirit redeemed them and called them back. And so when we tell stories, there's one hero of every story, and his name is Jesus. There's one seat in every heart, and it's a seat for Jesus. So we must remember this. And so the question is simply this, who are you following in this key relationship? When we say our two, we're saying a, a life-changing one with other believers. If it's life-changing, that's going to require an investment of time, of treasure, of talent, it's going to require you to invest into conversations. Todd and I talk almost every week, at least via text. My other pastors in Knoxville, Tennessee, Rick and I talk all the time. This is important for me. Why? Because the reality is one of the issues in the Church of America is we have a leadership culture, and a disciple is called to be a what? A follower. So who are you following? Make no mistake, any mistakes I've made at Vintage Grace, it's my sin, it's my flesh, and it's Todd Chapman. Because I'm following in the footsteps of someone who's further down the journey of me, and I'm looking at him, and make no mistake, my marriage is way better because of Todd Chapman. <laughs> my kids get a better version of dad because of Todd Chapman, because he said, Drew, don't do this. Watch out for this. You're going to be tempted to do that. Get off the throne of your heart. Don't believe that's going to make you happy. Fight for your joy in Jesus, but we can't fight our own. We need life-changing relationships with people that are going to tell us, Drew, you're an idiot. Drew, you're a knucklehead. Because we get distracted all the time by bees and flies and whatever it is. It's just what we do. It's who we are. We settle for lesser joys, and so we need brothers and sisters to step into our life, some that are a little ahead of us and some are a little behind us. We need to invite them into this key relationship. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul was not a narcissist. Paul was not perfect. When Paul said, follow me, remember what else he said. I'm a chief sinner. I have nothing to glory in except for my sin that Jesus saved and redeemed. Like That's it. We're not following Paul. We're following Paul as he follows who? Christ. The moment that Todd stops following Christ, guess what? I'm looking for new mentors in my life. But until that day, God calls us to be in relationship with people. So on this fall launch for RCC, please hear me. Get in a life group. If you're not in one, church is not about our Sunday morning gatherings. Sunday morning gatherings are 0.75%, not 1%, 0.75% of the week. If I preach really long, they're 0.8% of the week. But that's it. 99.25% of the week is not happening here. It's happening there in life changing. It's going to take your time. You're going to have to pick up the phone. You're going to have to take a trip to Southern California. You're going to have to fly to Northern California. You're going to have to figure out who are those people. And I probably won't be those people for you, but there's a truckload of life group leaders here at RCC that are those people. At Vintage, we're a church of micro churches, essentially. We have 40 small churches at our church. They just happen to gather on Sunday morning for a celebration service. So I would encourage you, get in a group. Sundays are important. Hebrews talks about that. We've talked about that a lot. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints, but also recognize that if you had to pick and choose Sunday versus life group on Tuesday, I'd go to Tuesday. I'd spend time in that small community of faith where we're fighting for our joy together. Rick Warren said COVID produced all sorts of lessons for the church. 
And, and it's so funny, as I've heard him kind of reflect and share on this, it said it revealed some real issues. It revealed some R1 issues as to what actually sits on the throne of our heart. Maybe not Jesus. Maybe other things. We've got to repent of that. Put that off. With that. It revealed some R2 issues. Like for a lot of people, church was about a gathering. It was about the people of God. Jesus did not call you to be the church and gather. He called you to be the church and go. Amen? It's not about our coming. It's about our scattering. This last year at Vintage Grace was a blast. It was hard. And I, like every other pastor in America, wanted to quit multiple times, which is why having guys like Todd in your life is important to say, calm down, trust Jesus. He's in control. He's not left the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still moving the gospel forward. One of the best parts, though, and why I'm so grateful that I didn't quit on so many different times, one of the best parts was this. We had more baptisms in 2020 than any other year at Vintage Grace. It was incredible. And I shared this not to draw your attention to Vintage, but the best part of that for me as a pastor is that where I stood for all of our baptisms was kind of like center stage. Our baptismal is over here. I baptized very few of those people. See, the best part is the people that were baptizing people of Vintage Grace were brothers, neighbors, bosses, employees, coworkers, friends. At Vintage, we like RCC, 50 Sundays a year, I preach a message that's driven by training disciples to go make disciples. Two times a year, Christmas and Easter, I give an altar call. But the sermon, the altar call, I pray is given every Monday when you go to work. The best sermons at Vintage are not on Sunday, they're on Monday, and they're lived by our people. Talk is cheap. The gospel is lived through you. And that's what was so cool for me as a pastor in 2020. And I actually think we should check this, Jen, but I think in 21, we're going to have even more baptisms this year. We're at about five to 10 every month, but they're not because Drew gave an altar call and that the sermons were so good at Vintage Grace. The only thing they say about the sermons at Vintage is that they're long. That's it. But it's not the sermons that are actually leading people to faith. It's the people that are living as missionaries, that this joy-filled community of faith, when the world is lacking joy, the world is lacking peace, church, this is our chance. This is our opportunity to be the living proof of a loving God, to say there's no better, safer, joy-filled community than those of us who trust and treasure Jesus. We're jacked up, we're broken, we're sinners saved by grace, we're saints who struggle with sin, but God. Those are our two favorite words at Vintage. But God. So church, don't miss the opportunity to, to let the word of Christ dwell, to sing songs to each other, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with this thankfulness in your heart. That's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to go. And I think this leads really well then into our three, which is the third key relationship. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. You know what the word everything means in Greek? Everything. Everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him, the God, God the Father, through him. You know the best part about our church that I just want to share with you guys, and I love it. Most people, not everybody, most people of Vintage Grace think they're missionaries. It is so cool, and it's so different than the church I grew up in. And I saw it here. You know why? Because I got to follow on a pastor that lived like a missionary. The amount of times that we played at LA Fitness, the amount of times that we'd go to Starbucks, the amount of times that we would live on mission together. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just following one of my rabbis. That's all I was doing. And I got to see the Lord work through relationships, not through large gatherings, but through the releasing of the saints. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him. I want to encourage you, one of the ways that we practice, we set our alarms for 938 at Vintage. 938, it comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 938, where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. Make that not true of you. 
Send kingdom laborers into the harvest. Because there's a harvest here in your Belinda and our surrounding cities. People that are dying and going to hell that are not discovering the joy of Jesus. And so that's the third key, relationships. Be a sent one. So we love our songs. We love our sermons. We love our stories at Vintage. But the best part of our services is not that they start, but that they end. That we get to send you. In fact, I found myself at Vintage Grace a couple years in. I clap at the end of every sending. Before I worked here, I worked at a Lutheran church. I preached in a robe and everything. They do a formal benediction. And I found myself at the end of our vintage services clapping. And someone said, Drew, why do you clap at the end of every service? I said, I don't know. But the more I thought about it, I think it's because we're doing a family huddle right now, aren't we? We're gathering together as the saints. We're remembering what worked last time, what didn't work. And then we're giving God the glory. We're saying, God, we know the final score. And as we leave this place, we, and we go. We break huddle. And we're sent to go be the living proof of a loving God. We pray, we watch, and we step as everyday missionaries because everything we do is for his glory and for their good. You teachers keep being teachers as missionaries. You know, I was joking with Peter. You know, I, I love this. So many of you guys have jobs where they're paying you to be a missionary. How cool is that? They're paying you to take the gospel to places. They don't ever invite guys like me and Todd to go speak at staff meetings. But you're speaking at staff meetings. You're a part of those conversations, again, for his glory and for your good. So church, don't miss our opportunity to be the living proof of a loving God. Because the reality is we're all dying. We're all dying. I don't mean that to discourage you. I mean that to free you, to not be stressed out about this world. You're already dying. The question is, if you love Jesus, you know where you're going. And now you get sent to help other people see that too. So as we wrap up, I want to close with just a couple of implications for us today. Because here's the reality. I love all three of these relationships, our one, our two, our three, but that's not the assignment. The assignment is not get better at our one, get better at our two, get better at our three, try harder. Has anyone tried harder? It doesn't work. It's saying, Spirit of God, I want to surrender my heart to you. I want to get off the throne of my heart and release it back to you. And so here, here's some corporate implications. Focus on our three, not one, two, or three, are cubed together. So corporately, what does this look like? Here's my fear. If we ever pull in one direction too hard, then we miss it. I think there's a temptation corporately for us to pull R1, information over transformation. So again, one of the things I love about your church and your elders and Todd, he doesn't care how smart you are. He cares that you're living out the gospel. My buddy Larry says it this way, the church in America has a tendency to overteach and underreach. Here's the temptation. If we just focus on our one, we can become a scholar. Now, hear me as a former professor. I like scholars. In fact, honestly, I'd much rather spend time with my books than with the people of God because my books are safe. You people, you sheep, you bite. These ideas and these opinions. But church, God has not called us to be our one Christians, to not be head Christians, but to let it overflow into our heart and into our hands. So be careful not to pull too far either way, because if you pull too far in any one of these directions, you're going to miss the mark. It's not just our one. It's not just our two. My, my fear for the church is sometimes our two becomes just this social gathering. And just like I said, church is not about Sundays. It's about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Honestly, even as we train life group leaders here and at Vintage, life group's not even about the Tuesday night that you meet, is it? It's about Thursday night when you lose your job. It's about Friday when the cancer diagnosis comes. We're not a social gathering. We're living life-on-life life ministry, fighting for our joy together, reminding each other, singing songs to each other to not settle for less, to not give up, to not forget the faithfulness of God. Then finally, don't lean too hard in R3. I called it SJW because I had to leave you with an acronym, right? Like that's my gifting. The social justice warrior. 
Are there gospel implications that lead us to do things socially? Absolutely. But make no mistake, I'm convinced and concerned that in all of these areas, we have a temptation to pull one direction and actually miss the mark and to forget the assignment. Lots of gospel implications. You guys have studied the book of James. Ironically, we studied it right before Braden's diagnosis. We studied it at Vintage just this past summer during COVID. Orphans, love the widows, no partiality in the kingdom of God. Massive gospel implications. But anytime we pull too hard in one direction, we actually take our eye off the prize and off the assignment and we miss the mark. And it's really not just one. We can't even do two of the three and not the other. We can't really set up. I mean, two or three get you in the Hall of Fame, but you'll miss the mark. Church, don't miss the mark this fall. If there's no R3, I'm afraid what starts to happen is that we become like a holy huddle. You've ever heard of the Essenes? The Essenes were this Jewish sect. They literally said that the world's going to hell. That's essentially what they said. So they ran away from the world. That's what they did. They created a holy huddle of R1 and R2, and they left. Man, I've prayed over someone every Sunday at Vintage Grace that's leaving for Tennessee or Idaho. Every Sunday. The good news is I, I meet two new families from San Francisco, so it's okay. Guys, and I'm not against it. If God's calling you to Idaho, some of you are already in Tennessee. It's not a bad thing. Just make sure you're going to live our cubed. Just make sure you're being sent to live on mission. But my fear in all of this is that somebody's got to stay. Amen? Someone's got to be a missionary in Cali. Somebody. And so we can't create this holy huddle. We are saved to be sent. Saved to be sent ones. That's if we have no R3. If we have no R2, then my fear, of course, is that we kind of create these religious rambos. I'll never forget my first time going to the Staples Center. I probably should repent of even going to the Staples Center, right? Like I'm a Warriors fan. I'll never forget going to the Staples Center and the guy gets up on his box and what's he say, right? You're all going to hell, which theologically, apart from Jesus, is that true? Yeah. But does it actually help anyone enter heaven? Not that I've experienced. We have these religious Rambos and they need a brother in Christ to come alongside them and say, hey, what is your objective here? What's the goal? Well, I don't want anyone to miss the joy of Jesus. Can I share with you some tactics that might help be more effective? That might help you invite someone into a relationship, which is kind of like what Jesus did to the woman at the well or to the woman caught in adultery or to the men that were trying to stone the woman caught in adultery. Jesus invited them to follow him in an R2 relationship. Why? Because your theology matters, but so too does your tone and your timing. We call that T-cubed. We got all sorts of stuff, guys. It's a joke. Your theology matters, but so does your tone and your timing. Fight for your joy in Jesus. If there's no R1, though, again, it's R1 for a reason. It might be the most important. That's where it starts. It's where it started in the garden. It's where it starts for you and me. My fear is we could create a cause coalition. We create this good thing, which is great, because I do believe that good works can lead to good wills, which leads to good news. I love that. I think it's part of how Jesus lived. But at Vintage, we're wrapping up building a medical clinic in Africa right now. And it's so cool, and it's making a difference. And lots of people are coming, and they're physically getting healed. But if they get physically healed and don't meet my Jesus, have we hit the mark? No. In fact, I'm actually convinced Satan would be very happy with Christians doing all sorts of good things as long as you don't talk about Jesus. So pay attention. We can't have a life with no R3 or no R2 or no R1. It's got to be Jesus. And so that's on the corporate front. On the personal front, I just want to ask these questions. Because again, I'm afraid in the church of America, we overteach and we underreach. So would you just listen to whatever the Spirit tells you? He's more important than me anyways. I'm going to give you three questions. I just want to invite you to open your hands right now. This is kind of a prompt of the way in which we pray. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of saying, God, what are you inviting me into today? 
So answer these three questions. How are you joyfully following Jesus today? Like Paul said, what are you taking off the throne and what are you putting on? What are you doing? Spirit of God, would you speak to us personally about our time and our talent and our treasure? Would you remind us of affections that we lack of you? Would you remind us of the joy that's only found in you? And would that drive us to do and to say and to be and to spend our lives differently? One of the things I joked with my Biola students is I had them memorize the verses we read this morning, just a way to remind them, what are they putting in? Because it's what's flowing out. What are they taking off? What are they putting on? Put on Jesus today, I pray. R2, who's your one? The role of disciple making in the church is not the senior pastor. It's not even the life groups. It's the people being released to make disciples. I love the way the navigators say it. Navigators say, you're not a disciple to your disciples made a disciple. Who are you discipling? Who are you inviting into relationship? Sometimes you need to go find them. Not just who are you inviting in, but who are you following? And I remember going to Biola. My dad said, Drew, you're going to forget everything you learn in New Testament theology. He's right. I did. But you're not going to forget the relationships that you step into. And so I found a professor by the name of Dave Talley at Bible University. And I just said, hey, can I follow you as you follow Jesus? He's like, sure, you can babysit my kids on Friday night. That's what discipleship looks like. I got to step into his marriage and his family. Now, of course, his kids are married and serving in ministry. Who are you following? It's going to take time and talent and treasure. You're going to have to give something up to put something else in. But who are you following? And who's following you? Now, I know that scares the crud out of you because if someone's following you, then you better make sure that you're following the right someone. Who are you following and who's following you this fall? The third question is, are you living as a missionary? Are you praying and watching? Are you taking those steps into what God invites you into? Are you setting your alarm? I got some prayer stickers I'll leave out on a table afterwards. It's just a prayer we pray at Vintage Grace. God, what are you inviting me into? Every morning I ask people to pray that prayer. Just wake up in the morning. God, what are you inviting me into? He's inviting you into a joyful relationship with him, joyful relationship with other believers, life-changing one. And he's inviting you in to be a missionary, to engage. We set our alarms because we forget what matters most. So church, can I just encourage you this fall, fight for your joy in community together. R1, R2, and R3. Making disciples that make disciples for his glory and for their good. Father God, we come before you and we, we've opened our hands. We said, Spirit of God, speak. Help us to see what we cannot see. Help us to understand what we can understand. But help us to see that you've given us an assignment to love you, to be loved by you as we sang this morning, and then ultimately to be sent by you to a lost world. So, Spirit of God, I just pray that you would call us even deeper to yourself today and that you would send us by your grace to be the disciples, the followers, and to call others to do the same, we pray. Lord, we worship you.